What's up, everybody? Welcome, welcome to the Arts and Data Science Happy Hour. It is Friday, September 30th, 2022. This is Data Science Happy Hour number 98. Just two more weeks until we get Happy Hour number 100 in the books, man. I'm excited for that. Nice. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pumped, man. Number 100. Uh, even though I started doing this thing right about two-ish years ago, which makes sense since it's mm-hmm. 100. Um, but I'm, I'm glad y'all are uh, sticking with me and hanging out. Uh, they used to be big, man. They used to be like overwhelming number of people in the rooms. They'd be like 50 some people in the rooms. And uh, now it's it's down to a more intimate group, which is uh, it's all good, more interesting conversations. But if you're out there listening on YouTube, LinkedIn land, just know that you are welcome to come to the happy hour at any time. That is uh, just go register. Uh, bitly bit.ly forward slash adsoh uh, this is not number 100 this is number 98 number 100 is gonna be happening in about two weeks uh been a good week man i was uh, out in san jose mm. for the intel innovation conference this week uh that was cool i got a chance to um to see uh the intel ceo pat gelsinger talk and debut a whole bunch of new chips uh and a new hardware that's coming out uh me personally not much of a hardware type of guy so a lot of it was kind of over my head but it seems like it's about to be uh pretty interesting uh what's what's happening they're launching their own gpus uh intel's got a cloud that's uh, gonna be popping off so that's super cool uh so i'm excited for that um and i'm looking forward to getting cheaper gpus from intel uh do some more deep learning stuff uh but also at the same conference, I got a chance to see uh, Linus Torvalds, the uh, creator of Git, the creator of the Linux operating system. He uh, had just like a little chat with um, with Pat Gelsinger and then won or rather received the Lifetime Achievement Award uh, from Intel Innovation. So that was cool to see. And then I got to see Andrew Ang do his thing. Uh, he did a presentation on data-centric AI for about 45 or so minutes. I was right there front row. It was cool to see. Uh, it was great, man. Then I got a chance to hang out with uh, Mikiko and Mark and Seattle data guy, uh, Benjamin Rogogan, out in San Francisco for a little bit. Went to this uh, happy hour, got to finally meet uh, my friend Ishani as well, uh, VC out at Nova Ventures. So that's cool. And then the next day after that, with the long ass layover in uh, Vancouver, got a chance to hang out with uh, more friends, John Sebastian, uh, Rima Gill. Uh, Zabia Mansoor, Dupontre Saini, you guys all hung out with me. That was cool. Went to the beach and just kind of chilled. It was nice. Uh, and now we're back here Friday, man. Friday, I'm about to go see Veer Das right after this uh, this session. So I'm going to keep it short to uh, to to about an hour max because, uh, you know, a little date night with the wife and go see uh, Veer Das, which I'm, I'm pumped for. So that should be Oh, fun. yeah. He's good. He's good. Yeah, he's funny. He's funny, man. I, I like him. I like him a lot. Um, but yeah, so if you're joining in on LinkedIn, let me know if you got any questions, if you got any comments, man. I'm happy to take all your questions and comments. I'm, uh, also, if you're interested in coming live to the uh, session, let me know. I'll send you the link to the uh, to the room and you can join us here in person. Shout out to everybody in the room. Christian, what's going on? Navneet, Archit, Jason, Yalib, Tashi, good to see Tashi again. Kostev in the building, Mikik on the building as well. Uh, some new names, man. Happy to see uh, all y'all here. Um, so anybody got any questions they want to kick off the uh, discussion with let me know um let's uh let's see this uh, question coming in from uh from christian here christian go for it yeah i'm just wondering if there's anything specifically to be aware of during a technical coding panel um interview panel so if anyone has any tips besides the content itself i think we all read enough about SQL and practicing that and the importance of it, um, Python, if it's relevant for the role, but I'm just more so curious as to like the structure and what to expect. If there's a software system that you log into to do a technical coding panel, I'm just curious to know. Yeah, I've seen it done a number of different ways. When I was actually interviewing with Google, it was just a, they opened up just like a Google doc and I wasn't able to run the code. So it was all just pure syntax. Um, other places I've done, it was kind of like a, um, I guess coder pad is what the software okay. was, where you're just kind of typing out right there on the fly. Uh, I don't know. I'm curious to see how else other people have seen it done, but um, those are the two ways I've seen it, where it's just strictly just on a doc, r- writing out the code, text file, whatever, um, just to see if you kind of understand how to think through the problem and write the syntax. A couple things to be aware of, man. Like um, apparently your typing speed matters. That's okay. one of those subtle things that you don't hear about but just make sure you're a fast typer and then also you know usual tip is just think out loud just kind of think through 
and be especially verbose. I think the worst thing you could do in one of these situations is uh, just clam up and not talk or think your way through the process, um, or rather just clam up and just think internally rather than verbalizing, um, because you want to give the interviewer a chance to kind of see what's going on in your mind. Christian, that's your question. Yeah, no, I was just, I was just going to say, it's, it's almost like explaining, like being verbose, like explaining your thought process. Mm -hmm. Um, like, what would you say? Like, if, if you get it wrong, but you explain your way of thinking, like, I know it probably depends on the role in the company and how senior the role is, but how would an interview take that? You know, like you're not, you're probably not going to be a hundred percent on every single question. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can only kind of think about personally. Sure. What I would do in a situation if somebody's like kind of, you know, not heading in the right direction, not going the right, you know, kind of way, I kind of nudge them towards, you know, the, the better solution. Right. Okay. Instead of instead of just like saying, oh, that's completely wrong and not give them any feedback, I try to actively give feedback and nudge them into the right direction because interviews are nerve wracking. Right. You can get nervous. You can, you know, kind of have have your brain freeze up. Yeah. Um, and I think for an interviewer who's on the other side of the table, they should be kind of sympathetic towards that and uh, help nudge you in the right direction. Um, but uh, I'd love to hear what other folks are to say. Jason, any thoughts on this? Archit, any thoughts? Navneet, any thoughts on coding interviews and any tips for Christian? Uh, Mikiko's in the building as well. So Mikiko, if you got any insights, let me know. I see Mikiko is coming on. She's about to drop some knowledge. Uh, she's uh, on mute as well. Oh, we go. hey. Yeah, there you go. Sorry. Can you guys see me? Yeah. Sorry yep. about the must appearance. I'm finishing my two-week vacation before I hop to my new stage of career. Um, yeah, I think um, well, one way to kind of think about it that sort of helps me because when it comes to like questions, I know when I was doing some of the tech interviews, sometimes like I felt like, oh, should I be asking like questions about X, Y, Z? Because maybe I need this information, but I also don't want to seem like I'm stupid. Um, so I kind of treat it as if like you literally have like a business partner, but depending on who's interviewing you, either like, uh, your like business partner is like right next to you, or you've got like another like analyst on your team. And then the normal questions that you would ask them as you're going through the analysis or through the screen, that's how like, I would sort of think about it because, um, like, so for example, if you got like a tape, like if you got a, a sample table, right. And they're like, create a report or what have you, right. The normal questions you'd be asking is like, okay, well, first off uh, for these metrics, like how should I be like, how should I be calculating them? This is how I think like, for example, if you're, if they're asking for like um, um, annual recurring revenue, right. It's like, okay. Um, when I see this, like, this is how I think about calculating. I sum up all like the order values and all that. Um, how would you define? how would you define like annual recurring revenue, right? For this problem. Um, so like asking the business logic, I think is always like, and clarifying that I think is always really good. Um, the other second part too is uh, you can't ask them for solutions, but there's studies that do show that like interviewers, when they talk about themselves, they like you more regardless of whether or not the content that you are producing or like the quality of your um, mm -hmm. output. So that can be, we're also asking questions can be very helpful or even making comments like, yeah, in my like job as X, Y, Z, um, as like in my job as a sales analyst, um, you know, I used to do these kinds of reports all the time. And these were some things that like popped up, uh, should I, you know, go ahead and filter out for like null values or, you know, what kind of level of, uh, cleanliness do you want me to like go after? Right. So it's things like, like, that's how the mindset I would sort of do is like, if it was just your teammate or your business partner, like sitting in front of you, what's like the normal dialogue you would have to kind of get to that, like resolution. Um, it's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Just that context and like even how to interact in, in that I've, I've never been through it. So that's why I'm asking, but yeah. Yeah. It's, <clears throat> it's, it's almost like a, a, like talking to a client. Right. Sure. And with a lot of the interviewers, sometimes um, there's a couple of different ways they could kind of get on the panel. Uh, if it's a hiring manager, it's because they, you know, want to hire for their team. Um, sometimes too, they'll, what a company will do is they'll just basically say like, Hey, like every, inter every engineer or analyst has to do X amount of hours, like interviewing. Mm 
So if they're having like a okay. big push to like um, expand like headcount, for example, like, oh, we want to double the company, right? They'll just say like, hey, everyone, you have to do like five to 10 hours, like regardless of how senior you are. And so some interviewers are going to feel like awkward ducks. Um, uh, I know someone who said like, if an engineer doesn't sound like a walrus when they're giving a presentation, they're probably not a real engineer. Uh, so that's almost like how to think about it, kind of. Like some interviewers are just going to be nervous because they're really new and bad at interviewing. Um, other folks, they're like doing some kind of rotation. And then they might they might look at your resume, but probably not, honestly. Sure. So it's like you can kind of just start the conversation as if they, they sort of don't really know a whole lot about you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I've had technical interviews, um, but it was, it was more discussion or like framing a technical concept in a like to it's like a normal non-technical business stakeholder um yeah. it's like in, in the context of sql and look ml but um never actually like sitting online and sharing a screen and coding live i haven't i haven't had that yet i've done like a skills assessment test but i got to take that home it was a take-home project and then present it so i had more time you know to yeah. not in real time so yeah yeah, and I think the other advice I give is um, as structured as you can be is is great. So, for example, if you want to like already like on the Google Doc or CoderPad, say like, okay, here's the here's like the key terms and like the values that I need to be calculating or the metrics. Here's the current definition as I understand it. Um, this is like the time period, all that, and then you just mm-hmm. kind of like decode out the query and just ask them like, does like this does like the business logic kind of like make sense um, or are there any questions you have or, and then usually when you say like, are there any questions they might say like, Oh, but what if like there is like different currencies or how would you handle like duplicate orders? And then what you can do is you can take that original one and then just like underneath it, add like the change that you would make. So okay. you can kind of approach it in sort of like the same logical way that you would a client. Cool. Some great, uh, sorry, not questions, but great comments coming in from LinkedIn from uh, J. Michael Palmero, the fourth shout out to J. Michael. He's a director and head of developer relations at, uh, at um, uh, uh, Telnix. Uh, he says, be true to your thought process. Uh, if you're talking through your thoughts, even if you're unsure, keep up the verbosity and positivity, approach it like a fun challenge. The ones I have seen not do well here freeze and look panicked. I think that's great advice, man. Just have a good time with it. At the end of the day, like, you know, if you're coding for a living, you should enjoy it. Uh, and so show that you enjoy it in the uh, in the uh, interview as well. Uh, I'd like to holler at um, Eric to get his perspective, because I know you're actively just have been interviewing for these live coding sessions. Um, and so Christian's uh, question was anything to be specifically aware of during a technical coding interview panel? Uh, besides content itself, any tips, handling nerves, et cetera. And this is one of those situations where um, it's like happening like live and in like in sync. Yeah. Uh, and if, uh, you know, Navni, Jason, Archit, uh, if you guys got any uh, uh, tips uh, for, for Christian here, just use the raise hand icon. Let me know. I'll, uh, I'll get to you guys. So one of the things that I think this is just like a little practical thing that I think makes things easier is when you're working in an environment like <clears throat> CodePad or whatever, it's really easy to, you know, you're going to write probably not a really complex query. And so it's really easy to just kind of like write everything on a couple of lines. But like, I actually think that that's kind of a little bit of a disservice to yourself because I'm not necessarily like great and hardcore on whether or not like legibility is great, but if you're working through something and then you kind of get stuck and you got to go back and work through something, uh, rework it. It's nice if it kind of already flows the way that you usually think. And it's also easier to just like comment something out and try something new and things like that. So I think that just a tiny little practical thing is keeping things a little bit clean as you work helps keep, I think, keep my thoughts organized as I'm working, especially in an environment where it's like stressful, we feel timed, we don't know whether or not we can Google things and we're talking to somebody we've never met before, you know, so it's like anything that you can do to make it familiar to you and like keep it at your speed and your jam is great. Um, I would definitely support uh, what I think was Harpreet or, or Mikiko was saying of talking through your 
thought process. I really appreciate it when people do that. Even if even if it's just kind of saying, well, I think here would be a, I think it would be helpful to use a rank here, but I guess you could also use a row number for this in this case. Well, you know, because like you don't have to use both of those, but I can now hear you say things if it's a SQL thing, for example, to be able to say, oh, like he knows both of those, or I'm not necessarily going to be like, well, when would you use one and when would you use the other? Because I don't really care. Just, you know, you'd figure it out when you need it. Um, but I, I really value people being conversational and talking through their thought process because the other thing is you would be my coworker if you get through this interview. And so I would really like to hear from what you would hear, what you'd be like as my coworker, because I want to hire cool people. Um, so those are kind of some thoughts that come to mind quickly. Yeah. Thank you so much. Let's go to, uh, Navneet and then Kostub and then, uh, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear from like Archit or or Jason, man, just because you know y'all are, are new around here, man. I want to let me see what y'all sound like. Uh, let's go to Navneet, Kostub, then uh, if you know Archit and uh, Jason, if you guys want to chime in, please do let me know. No pressure. Yeah, I mean, depending on who's interviewing you and what their style is, you know, um, I think is is a big factor. It's a junior person, somewhat. You you know, you may be kind of bogged down a little bit into the weeds, but if there's somebody a little bit more seasoned, you, you know, they'd like if they'd like to probably know your process from start to finish, even though you can't get through the entire code. I always, whenever I have these interviews or I'm taking these interviews, I usually ask the candidate to get a project that they're comfortable sharing. And, you know, so if that helps me know what their process was from start to finish, and do like a screen share or something. So I like to keep it handy if you had the opportunity to go there. Um, and that way you, you know, they sort of see the sophistication of thought and your code as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, all really good advice advice there. And again, like ask questions because sometimes I've been in these interviews and they're like really vague. So it's, totally fine to take your time to ask questions and get clarity on what the actual problem is. Sometimes they are meant to be vague. So you ask them those questions. Okay. Whatever you do though, don't, don't give up in the, in the middle of the interview. I mean, I've, I've been in just situations. Mad at <laughs> I've been in situations like I'd like freeze up and I'm just like, Oh shit, dude, I can't think through it. And, uh, and that, that, that happened to me during the Google interview. I was like thrown in the towel. I was like, man, I, I can't do this. And the guy was like super helpful. He's like, no, dude, let's give it the old college try, man. Let's let's think through this together. That's awesome. And, and that was just really like believing. I was like, here it is. This guy's like, you know, I'm interviewing for Google. I think it's like you know, one of the hardest things ever, but he's like super nice about it. And we get through and uh, get a solution. And, you know, that, that was helpful. Uh, Costa, let's go to you, then Archit. And then, by the way, all y'all watching on LinkedIn, super excited to have you guys here. Uh, do me one favor if you're on LinkedIn, give me a, uh, you know, smash a like, you know, share this thing, get get the word out there. And if you have a question on LinkedIn, you got a comment, uh, I always welcome all of your questions and comments. So please do keep them coming. Coast up and then arch it. So there's a practical aspect to interviewing, right? Um, <clears throat> and it's going to change. Your mentality is going to change depending on whether, to be blunt, whether you're in a position of strength or not, right? Um, are you coming at it from a, hey, I have a job that's pretty good, pays me what I need to be paid, uh, you know, and I'm looking for something different? Or am I coming at it from a, hey, I'm trying to break into this industry, I'm trying to secure trust that I don't have the experience for um, and things like that, right? It's a slightly different mindset between both. And uh, obviously, it also depends on what's the competition like in that in that market, right? The competition in the American market, particularly for junior entry-level data scientists, is fierce, extremely fierce, right? Uh, same thing in Australia, but the moment you're talking about people with five to seven years experience, very different ballgame, right? Typically, people interviewing at those levels don't have as much competition because that's the current state of the market that it is. And, and the second aspect of it is that typically you're coming in from a different uh, from a different role, either in data science or maybe not in data science that you still pretty much enjoy, especially if you're uh, entering from a side um, from a different, um, sorry, entering from a parallel kind of field, right? Um, now, I've been fortunate enough to mostly interview from a position of strength, 
So what I tend to do there is I tend to focus on being myself and where I, to almost quote Stevie Ray Vaughan, where I mess up is when I start thinking about what's the technically correct way to play up and down the, the fretboard, right? When I'm just feeling it and just going with my natural self, it just works, right? Like it, it, that holds true for so many things. Like I did an interview recently and it was a panel interview where three people were watching me code in my IDE and it was the simplest Python programming thing. And I was just messing it up. I was just messing it up. And, and there is no way to really explain that at all. That's something that I could do hands tied behind my back. If you just yeah, give it to me, leave me alone in the room for 20 minutes or 30 minutes and just smash it out, right? No problem. So a lot of the time we get so caught up in, hey, I have to behave in this way, answer in this way. There is different expectations for, oh, what's here, you know? You, whatever it is, right? Should, should I be using a star approach versus some other approach to interview questions? Should I be focusing on typing speed or should I, uh, am I allowed to slow things down and actually ask and understand and ask inquisitive questions or are they expecting me to just dive right into it, fire off 10 different answers? Like we've heard three or four great strategies here and some of them actually conflict with each other, right? Um, like typing speed matters, yes. But then do you sacrifice typing speed to, uh, to stop back and ask them all the right questions? Or are they expecting you to jump in? And different interviewers are looking for different things. There is no point really trying to find out what are they looking for. I'll give them that. At the end of the day, that's not a good representation of yourself. Now, I caught myself thinking, hey, I'm going to you know, dive in and give them the code that they want really fast. Like, I was reflecting on that, and I'm like, that is just not how I operate. I should have pulled back. By the end of that interview, I actually managed to pull that back and say, okay, hang on. Let's pull this back and start from a conceptual approach. And I've never mm -hmm. finished the coding challenge, right? And I've never finished it. But I managed to show them what my thinking would be in terms of solving the algorithm. And then in terms of how I would then go to code it, it's a totally different ballgame, right? Yeah. Um, and it's kind of the difference between a take-home exam and a live coding panel. But then there's the other side is take-home exams are usually a lot more time intensive. Is it worth investing your time in that? So when I'm interviewing someone, when I'm on the other side, I don't so much care about whether they get to the answer or not. And you'll find that a number of good interviewers might say the same thing because I've heard this a few times. I don't care whether they get to the full correct answer or not. What I want to see is how they think and how they approach the problem, right? So personally, I do better at, at whiteboard interviews. And unfortunately, we don't get to do always, we don't always get to do a take-home exam at a whiteboard interview, at a live coding challenge, to see where a candidate fits best, right? So if you're a fish out of your water, call it out. Say, hey, I'm not used to this. I'm much better on a whiteboard. Do you have something you'd like to ask me on a whiteboard? There's nothing wrong with like, like flipping the tables a little bit, asking for something different. But that's easier to do when you're negotiating from a position of strength, when you've already got a job that you like and you're not, you know, um, trying to break into an industry that can sometimes add, like it can, it's essentially about positions of strength and negotiation. Yeah. Right. But when you are in a position of strength, ask for, ask for what, I mean, it's a bit ballsy, but ask for, sure. ask for the things that will show you in the best light for them to realize what they're going to be working with. Cause that's what they want to see. And that's what you want to show. Like I said, you're going to be working next to me. I want to know how you think and how you do your best work not how you flounder in something that I expect everybody to pass, right? So um, just a different mentality and mindset. It comes with its own risks, be warned, right? Some employers would hate that. You throw that at them and they would just be like, no, you got to do things our way. And, and fair enough, right? Power to them. That's, that's their position of strength where they have enough candidates that they will get right. enough people playing the game their way, right? So it's at the end of the day, it comes down to negotiation strength. In a, in a weird okay, that really helps. Yeah. Some Provides where, which end of the spectrum I'm on too. So uh, yeah, thank you. And also it depends how Machiavellian you want to be about the whole situation. So, sure. <laughs> you know, play your cards the way you like to. Yeah. For those not in the Zoom room reading the chat, Eric says, when I do interviews, the goal isn't to finish all the questions, it's to do a good job. Asking questions shows good qualities that just writing code may not show. And then he's also saying, Hey, am I not, I'm not used to coding on the spot with unfamiliar data in front of strangers. Is that what I'm going to be doing in this role? Uh, that's, that's a fair question, man. You know, isn't, isn't that uh, the really 
poor assessment of writing good code. Like we want to see people writing good code, but we also want to see them to do it in 20 minutes with other people watching over their shoulder. I've never seen genuinely good code written that way unless they already knew what the answer should be. I, I, I don't know. I'm just yeah. <laughs> trigger. I mean, I guess. So uh, what a, I know Archit has his hand up, so let's go to Archit. But before we do that, there's a good question. That's a big question, rather, coming in on LinkedIn from Skylar Bullard. And I want you guys to noodle on this while we go through uh, Archit's answer here. Skylar is asking, how does data science make a profound impact in business? That is a massive, huge question. So if you want to start queuing up your answers for that, uh, use the raise hand function. I'll be sure to get to you. Uh, but Archit, go for it. Yeah, I'm actually going to take the stage here and uh, answer both the questions in one go because I really like the second question. Okay. But as far as the first question goes, uh, <clears throat> uh, this is uh, something from my personal experience and I'm going to be speaking a little bit on the technical side of things. I broke into data science uh, three and a half years ago coming from a software development background. It was really difficult. Uh, but something that helped me uh, was talking about uh, big O complexities whenever I was coding. Uh, even if it's not required, if I was putting, a, putting up a for loop, uh, another for loop, I was just saying it out loud, hey, it's uh, n squared complexity because there are two loops. Uh, so at least the uh, interviewer, like some of the people said here, realizes the fact that I understand what it is and good code is important for me equally. Second, I want to build up on what Anamneet said uh, was whenever you're walking, uh, walking uh, when you're talking to someone and you know, kind of walking through your project, you can always uh, start with the architect. You know, like you don't need to be completely right about it, but just give hints in your conversation around the architect of the solution. Like, hey, we use Spark here. We, you know, we had an ETL developer or an SQL developer who helped us with these pipelines. They were streamed through this. Uh, that way, you know, uh, the interview will get. A lot of things without actually asking you those specific questions and you can also through here play play through to your strengths you know if uh, you can actually take the conversation or take the interview towards a direction which are your you know which lie in your strength areas basically um yeah uh, as far as the second question the second question goes business impact uh i i was very glad i'm i'm, I'm I was really blessed to work with Duke Energy as my first data science job. And some of the business impact that uh, I and my team bought in uh, while working there is very relevant, very present. So I was in the renewable, uh, the, their commercial renewable business. And so wind, solar, uh, drone fleets to, so we used to do data science around uh, basically saving the, tax dollars or uh, what is it called exactly? Subsidized tax dollars so that we can pull that money, push that money back into renewable business. And we would do this by actually flying drones above solar fields, uh, which would take infrared images. And we would do computer vision on them to identify burn strengths. Another project that I worked on was using anomaly detection. I used FB Profit, uh, LSTM, a couple of things to uh, basically determine if there's a windmill that's going to fail uh, in another six to 12 months. And uh, if you can predict that, you can actually salvage it, fix it, and save close to $350,000 because that would last another three to four years. Uh, otherwise, it'll just burn out and you'll have to replace the whole thing. So the business impact is huge in some of these uh, I would say utility in healthcare, especially because these are some of the uh, industries or the areas which are sort of behind. They're trying to pick up and come up. Uh, but yeah, I hope I uh, did justice, justice to that question. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, appreciate your answer. And uh, hopefully this kicks off a good discussion. The question that Skylar wants to uh, know is how does data science make a profound impact in business? Uh, any thoughts from uh, Navneet or Jason or uh, 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 Makiko, Eric, anyone? Navneet, go for it. I mean, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Where do I start? Um, I, 
you know, depending on what you do, so a little bit of background, I work a lot in on the media side, on media analytics and data sciences. And on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis, and I know Eric does similar things too, um, you know, we make decisions on how to spend money on a TV ad, a Facebook ad, a Google ad, things that you're seeing on screen. Um, and we use models day in, day out, you know, to see, you know, what the ROIs are, you know, what's the, what are the response curves, what, um, you know, what's our top limit, what's, where are we spending too much, where are we spending too little, things like that. So on a day-to-day, I mean, you know, when we are talking about millions and millions of dollars of spend, some people do care about what the ROI is on that. Um, so a lot of this this work is built on uh, data science models and you know MMMs and whatnot. So, um, so the agencies and the you know the ad world runs on these mod- models pretty heavily. Um, you know the way we buy media, the way we measure media, the way we sell media. Um, it's a big part of what we do and understanding these basics of how all of this mechanism works is important to our roles as data scientists. Um, so yeah, it's, um, yeah. I mean, all the I remember, you know, when you were in school and in economics, and you read about like linear optimization and constrained optimization and those things in your know, econ two hundred one three hundred one classes. You know, that stuff is still being used today <laughs> for a lot of the work that we do. So, you know, we're going to, it's handy. It's handy. And at least I, I look at those response curves at least once a week, not more. Joe Reese in the building, chilling over there at uh, Sydney Airport. Got to see some, uh, got to see some pictures of Joe Reese hanging out with Danny and Kostub. Thought that was cool. That was cool. Y'all got to hang out. Uh Joe, uh, how long is your flight about to be? It's going. 20 something hours? Oh, Jesus. Like uh, 14 hours back to LAX. And then um, who knows? Yeah, it's going to be a long day. Brutal. But it's like, uh, it's, yeah, Saturday here. And then I get back on Saturday. It's like time travel. It's pretty bad. Yeah. So, wait, are you saying that 14 hour flights are not normal to the rest of you guys? Like, it takes me 14 hours to get point blank anywhere other than singapore <laughs> yeah definitely not normal man uh australia is far australia is really far away uh joe but the question uh maybe you want to just uh you know get a quick answer in before we board the flight it's how does data science make a profound impact in business profound impact um it's a really good question uh i, I would say that it'll help um and from what I've seen, uh, data science, um, when used properly, will help uh, amplify, I would say, um, existing processes and make them better. So things that you need to do at scale will help amplify those. Sure. So um, if you choose the right use case and then you have the right processes and systems down to do data science, you'll um, do it pretty well. So, yeah. Yeah. Pretty noisy. So I'm myself. Yeah, yeah. No worries. Uh, Eric or Makiko or uh, Jason, any thoughts here? Uh, you know, maybe uh, i want to just kind of rephrase the question so how about how have you seen data science make a profound impact in your business uh whether that's a current job or or previous job um and let's let's just erase the word profound from it how have you seen data science make an impact in your business uh so eric let's let's hear from you and then uh you know i'd love to hear from jason if you want or uh tashi or Jacob or anyone really, man, let me know. Or Christian, let me know. So I work as an analyst. And so I'm not, I, uh, I'm, I'm jealous of like Archit's project, like flying drones over windmills and stuff like that. I think that's way cool. Uh, but uh, working, working as an analyst, I was trying to think of like, okay, like any, any of us could like point to maybe projects that we've done or, you know, projects that we've read about of like tremendous savings by implementing something like linear regression even or whatever, right? Some kind of a model. Uh, but one one other piece that I want to bring for data science or just and just 
data literacy having an impact on the business is like a piece of my job that I is not in my job description, but that is really important to what I do is I work with like my main marketing stakeholder. Like she'll send me a message to say like, Hey, can we see such and such cut broken down by such and such? I'm like, yeah, you can totally see that in this data mart and like point it right to it. And it's like, Oh, I am now enabled as a marketing person to like build this myself. And I didn't even know it was there. So like in that way, teaching and use like understanding how to use data with the mind and heart of a teacher can have a profound impact on the business because she will know how to do that long after I'm gone. And as long as I'm helping other people to learn and do those things, then now my stakeholders aren't asking me for something that they can do themselves, which frees up my time to work on things that they can't do themselves. And so that's what I've been able to then focus on like projects that I would much rather be doing that are more, more, you know, connected more to my skills versus their skills. Um, so anyway, have a profound impact on the business teaching and data literacy. That's a, yeah. that's a big thing. Yeah. I like that a lot, dude. That's, that's actually super true, right? You teach somebody to like, you know, you can feed somebody or cheat them out to fish, that type of thing. Right. Um, awesome. Thank you. Uh, so there's one instance that, uh, back from, you know, my, well, I'm still a data scientist, I guess, but back when I was like a officially titled data scientist, where uh, the, the project I was working on was having to come up with like these custom discount rates, right? So we had this, uh, we we're selling manufacturing equipment for HVAC stuff, and we were essentially selling them to a middleman who then go and sell to the public, right? And this middleman would have like this agreed upon kind of discount factor that, uh, that they would sell our products at. But every now and then to get competitive with one of their bids, they wanted to request more of a discount. So they'd come through and have a special discount request. And these special discount requests had to go through a manual process where uh, there's high level exec executives, like, you know, like VP director level people, like going through spending at least an hour, hour and a half a day reviewing these requests and coming up with the, you know, the appropriate uh, multiplier. Um, so I built a model, I was sitting with them, went out to Atlanta for like a week and sat with them to, think, to you know, observe how they go through this process of coming up with the discount factor and just built a model for that, uh, you know, used some you know, boosting models and, and was able to deploy that to production. And the end result was uh, not only more accurate and stable discount factors but you know within the first quarter man we recouped like three mil top line it's not a lot given that the company was like doing 750 million in revenue every year but uh three million in, in the quarter man like that paid my salary uh you know 10 times over <laughs> more than that uh so that's that was i thought a kind of semi-profound impact um and the opportunities that that opened up like within the company was crazy because now everybody saw the value of like this data science thing and they wanted to invest in a uh, entire data strategy and, and, and all that stuff, um, which I found out was not my cup of tea, uh, which is why I left. Um, but yeah, Nivni, you're saying something? Uh, Might've been a uh, miss unmute there. Sorry, no, mate. Yeah. that was by mistake. Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, another question coming in, or if anybody got comments on that, please do let me know. Um, let me know. Just use the uh, raise your hand function. Matt McFarlane is asking on LinkedIn, he's got a personal reason for wanting a job that uh, he wants to donate 15K to Ukraine for humanitarian aid to put America number one for the, I can't even say that word. Um, so uh, pretty much the biggest motivator for him getting a job and interviewing for DevOps role uh, when his interests lie in machine learning, um, is that he wants to uh, essentially use the money to donate to Ukraine. And he's wondering, is this a disastrous point to bring up in an interview? How much personal information can we share? I wouldn't bring that up in an interview. Um, that would not be something I'd bring up. Um, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, I'd love to get you guys insights on this, right? Like, do you share your motivations for, because he's saying that he's going into a DevOps role, but from the content he shares, from like the stuff that he's been writing about, it's very clear that he's interested in machine learning. 
So I guess he's kind of worried. Okay, if they bring this up, can he just tell them the, the reason why? Uh, Makio, you got your hand up, so let's uh, let's hear from you. I think the thing we sort of forget is that to a certain degree, interviews aren't about us. It's about the company and the job that we're interviewing for. So I, I don't see anything wrong with basically saying like, Hey, um, cause it's like, this comes up sometimes, right. With questions where they're like, um, you know, what, like, well, what, where, where do you see yourself in five years or what's motivating you or, or all that? Like, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with saying, um, you know, something that motivates me to continue growing, to continue delivering value, um, to being kind of the best professional, like professional I can be in this area is because I do want to, I, I do love engaging in philanthropy and charity. Like, I, I don't, I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, I, I do kind of feel like, I mean, there's like a couple of things bundled in there, right? Um, in general, I, I hate to say it, but I do think sometimes there are concerns about if you bring in like financial neediness in a conversation, in an interview. Um, I think sometimes that may be as accurate as it might be to someone's situation that might put the interviewer in sort of like an awkward place um, where they're suddenly concerned about, okay, like, you know, they're not thinking about how do I evaluate you as a candidate? They're thinking like, oh, shoot, if I like reject you, is this going to be a liability, all sort stuff? So I kind of feel like as long as you're position positioning yourself as like the best professional you can be as someone who is going to deliver value to the business, like regardless of the title. And like saying that, hey, like a passion of mine is is, is charity and philanthropy, because that is something that is also a passion of mine, too. Right. Um, I, I don't see anyone seeing anything wrong with that. It's just once again, be sure to focus on the value you're delivering to the interviewer versus like yourself. The second part is, um, I guess, like I, I do kind of feel like if I want to rustle up money for charity, I don't know if I would let that dictate the job that I take. Um, to me, like a job or a project or whatnot is very, very personal. And my future income earning outlook is based off my current job. And if I know I I'm, want to do a certain kind of work, even if I'm not great at it immediately, it makes more sense to jump to that work to continuously get better. And then, you know, if you get like, a, if you get like an annual bonus or if, or if you get a signing bonus, um, you can definitely use that for your charitable uh, options. But it, it's like on an airplane, right? They say, put the mask on yourself and then you put the mask on your first favorite child and then the second favorite child and so on and so forth, you know, on the children who have the highest earning, you know, earning potential or that you like the most. Sometimes those are the same. Sometimes those are different. Um, but at the end of the day, like you still have to put the mask on yourself first and then you can con and then you can cons open up your scope of awareness and responsibility because i can tell you if you do a job that you hate um the that's going to show up in like three to six months and then you're just going to hop to another job and then basically people are going to say like oh you're a job hopper da 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 you know um and, and that's going to impact your ability frankly to pay it forward a lot more than like your current sort of like just getting a job just to, like you know for, for for my i don't know like to me it's it's a little bit of a a confusing kind of decision-making process. Um, if you're really, really interested in in donating money to um, the, the the crisis that that is going on, um, I would say that there are probably more straightforward ways to do so than using your job to do that. Um, and also, some companies also, regardless of what role you're working, they do have a charitable um a matching program. So for example, into it, it doesn't matter if you're an engineer, if you're in marketing, if you're whatever, they will do um, some kind of like matching program. So that's another thing is if it's something that you really care about, maybe look instead at whether the company like has a matching program. Um, and if they have ways to like, you know, meet your charitable contributions, you can say that that's a value that you're looking for in a company, but I just, I don't know. I think there's a certain way I would approach the decision-making process and how I would frame the conversation. 
Thank you very much, Makiko. Let's go to Kostub and then Eric. Uh, yeah, dangerous waters, my friend. Um, Makiko, you hit like a lot of the, what I was going to say uh, on the on the head, right? It's does the company care about that? Let's be brutally honest. Is that a priority for the company, right? In an interview, yeah, as much as I was saying before, yeah, play your position of strength. You're there to find out what, what the company has to offer you in terms of opportunities. It's also about what do you have uh, to offer the company, right? The company is investing X amount of dollars into you when they have the opportunity cost of investing that same amount of dollars into someone else, right? Um, is that something they really care about? How? What's the nature of this company? If they are focused on charitable causes along the way, uh, brilliant. Maybe they are receptive to that. Bring it up. See what you can, you know, show that that's an additional alignment. If that's your primary focus and goal of doing it, I, I hate to say it, as, as, as lucky as we are right now in the data industry, there's far more lucrative ways of making bucket loads of money to... <laughs> you know, to fund whatever it is you need to fund. Um, so even from that perspective, it's just, yeah, uh, there's enough people in this industry looking at um, entering this industry from a passion standpoint that you're not necessarily doing yourself uh, a major benefit by putting that out there at an interview stage. It also depends on what stage of the interview you're at, um, the nature of the company that you're at, the nature of the people that you're dealing with, right? Like some companies might be super forward. Other companies are looking at that going, hey, hang on. Am I paying this person an extra $15,000 a year so that they can do that comfortably, right? Um, and and it's it's not an unreasonable like thought process. It's, it again, sounds, I'm, I'm on a bit of a cynical streak today, but it sounds cynical, but it's not unreasonable, right? You've got to put yourself in, in the company's shoes as well. What are they looking for? Where are they looking to invest their money in, in people that are, or what are they doing with that money, right? Um, it's the bottom line. Uh, some companies can afford to be charitable and they do set it up and I admire that, right? And I would definitely join in depending on the causes, right? Um, that's a very personal thing and sometimes I prefer not to advertise things like that as much as I do a lot of community work and, and things like that. Where I do bring it up is, for example, I do a lot of community work with the, the music community out here in Sydney in Australia, the, um, particularly the Indian, uh, Indian classical music community. Where I bring it up is my passion for that leads to time being spent there and time that I expect to spend uh, in those environments. So, I draw those time boundaries quite clearly in that I need a certain amount of energy and time to engage in those activities properly, right? Um, and that's a much more um, acceptable, acceptable pitch, I find, right? Um, even if it means that you need time and energy to do certain fundraising. I, I know people that have, you know, uh, I know someone who I used to work with had a particular art form that they practiced. It was a performing arts Thing and they had to make sure that they had at least one day a month where they could do a full workshop. So that was part of the agreement with their employer is that they would have annual leave, but they would also have kind of partially in lieu, partially purchased, you know, um, additional leave one day a month so that they could go and focus on workshops for this art form because they had to do an intensive day at least once in a month, right, um, to actually do well and continue to perform in that. Um, so there's different ways of bringing that up. I don't know if coming out right and saying, hey, I want to spend X amount of money every year, um, donating it is necessarily the right move. It does bring up questions that are not necessarily helping you in your favor of getting that role, right? Um, so, yeah, just think about how you present that. It's a dangerous game. Just be mindful of it. Kosip, thank you very much. Eric, you had uh, you had your hand up there. Do you want to go for it? Yeah. So it's been really helpful. I've kind of had a few minutes to think. Like, so one thing I'll just throw out there is similar to what Mikiko said. Like at Lending Tree, they have a matching program. 
doesn't matter what lending trees politics are. doesn't matter what CEO's politics are, whatever. I can donate to whatever causes I want and lending tree matches, you know, up to a certain amount of it. And I use pretty much the whole thing. Um, I think it's great. And so I would definitely recommend that. Um, but one thing I was thinking about, like to kind of your second, your second question, it's a little bit more general on, on LinkedIn, like how much can we bring up personal stories outside of technology if we can tie it together? So one thing that I don't understand very well personally, but wish that I did uh, better is privilege, right? Like I'm a privileged white guy. If I am into some, if I have strong feelings about some political topic, I don't necessarily have to share that in an interview and no one will know if I have fringe beliefs or something. I cannot see your profile picture on LinkedIn because we're not connected. And so I don't see them. But if you happen to be a trans black man, then like some personal stories of your life are like much more visible than my personal stories are. So I guess to kind of like, as I think about it, it's just like, when I think about things I want to share, I think about like, if I share this, I want to share, I want to feel comfortable sharing something that I own and I'm going to own no matter what. And that if the company that I'm talking to has a big problem with this, then I have to be comfortable knowing that this company is not a good company for me. And then there are other things that I can share that I, or I can decide not to share because it's, it's no big deal. I don't care if somebody disagrees with me about one thing or another. Um, and those might be, you know, stories that you don't necessarily have to put out there. But one thing I think is just really important to recognize is like, it's easy to, for me, you know, to think from a perspective of privilege of just like, ah, just like, don't talk about that because it might, it might not work out for you, but like, we don't all necessarily always have that option. So it's helpful for me to think through it because sometimes I'm on the other side of the table to say like, what does that, like what, through what lens am I listening to this story? And if I think about it from a different lens, how would my perspective change? Eric, thank you very much. Uh, any input here, Arshit or uh, Jason, if you guys got anything to, to say, please do let me know. Uh, yeah, if just, you know, you raise your hand. Feature there on Zoom. Question on YouTube coming in from Tosin. Um, so it's a good question. It's, a, it's a kind of a hello world of data science question. Uh, what's the difference between data science, machine learning, deep learning, and artificial intelligence and NLP? That's a good question. So I think of it as like concentric circles, right? That's kind of one way you can you can kind of imagine it uh, and the way i kind of imagine it might be different from other people but I, I think data science is like the entire you know encompasses all of that i think data science encompasses you know not only machine learning deep learning ai nlp uh, but also like data governance and analytics and data management and and data engineering of course like that to me falls all under the data science umbrella um and then within data science you can have machine learning right and machine learning, you know, it's just a set of techniques that data scientists use. And then within machine learning, going a little bit deeper, is uh, I'd say I, I miss the artificial intelligence part. I guess I, I think data science, artificial intelligence, uh, even though they have significant overlap, when I think of artificial intelligence, I think of more of deep learning. Uh, that's kind of more like synonymous to me is is I think deep learning and AI are really synonymous. Um, and NLP is just a you know, NLP would would cross both machine learning and deep learning because there's techniques to do NLP that don't require deep learning. And, you know, nowadays there's mostly deep learning techniques for NLP transformers and the like. Um, hopefully that clarifies it. Um, <laughs> I'd love to hear somebody else's conceptualization of this. Uh, Archit, you got anything to say there or uh, or, or Co-Step? Let's go to Co-Step then, Ar then uh, Archit. Um, and the next question Tosin has, if you guys want to just kind of think about it, is do I need to learn data analysis before learning data science? I think that's, that's a good question. Kosa, um, go for it. Uh, so I I tend to draw a slightly different mind map to it. It turns out to be more of a very overly connected tree uh, where I kind of put artificial intelligence at the top. Um, primarily because there are non-data-driven uh, processes that mimic artificial intelligence in fields outside of software, right? So when you come at it from a robotics perspective, there are 
control systems that allow you to make decisions um, that are not necessarily, well, they are technically data-driven, but they don't follow the statistical methodologies and the mathematical methodologies that you see that are uh, such a core aspect of data science. So when you look at it from a skills perspective and a technical perspective, someone who's really good at data science may not have the natural knowledge, like the latent knowledge, sorry, not natural knowledge, latent knowledge built in to address those aspects of artificial intelligence and, and vice versa, right? Um, the Someone who's well-versed in uh, some of those systems in terms of artificial intelligence, in terms of decision-making machines might not have the, might not be conversant at the mathematical level um, of what you expect from a data scientist. So there's that aspect of it as well. So when you start, I start thinking about it as artificial intelligence starting to bring on a, beyond just the basic, uh, you know, uh, if else kind of decision-making systems that we have, how are we augmenting more um, abstract level uh, decision-making? How, uh, how are we proceeding to more um, complex uh, synthesis level decision-making, right? Um, things like that, that typically we're trying to do things that aren't very black and white anymore. Um, and that can come in many different flavors. So I tend to put artificial intelligence at the top of that tree as the broadest possible category and data science being a series of tools used to bring us closer to artificial intelligence. Um, robotics, uh, like path planning and algorithms within robotics being another, uh, another path, like another set of tools within the space of artificial intelligence, right? Um, so I think of intelligence more as a broad concept, but then each of these other things, whether it's statistical numerical uh, processes, whether it's Gaussian processes, whether it's uh, data science, um, I think of them more as techniques and approaches to fulfilling artificial intelligence. But that's also yeah. very biased standpoint on it. Yeah, I love that. Very, very well articulated. Far better than I could have uh, said that. Thank you, Costa. Uh, Archit, do you still want to go? Then we'll go Archit and uh, and Eric Sims. Um, uh, let's go Eric and then Archit. Eric, okay. go for it. Uh, maybe to what I am guessing is kind of the spirit of the question as to the difference between all of them. Um, there are lots of good diagrams, uh, picture versions of what Harpreet and Kostov have both said. I would say if, if you focus on learning to solve business problems using data, then it might end up being that you need Excel or Tableau to solve the problem, or it might end up being that you need... Um, an algorithm that you would that you need uh, in order to solve that problem, and whether you get that from a post that is on Towards Data Science or that is on ML Weekly or Artificial Intelligence uh, Today or whatever the website happens to be called, it ultimately are if we're solving if we're solving problems with data, uh, then you know, you, you'll fall into the, you'll fall into the tool and you'll find out along the way that sometimes data science, AI, ML, and all of that is just kind of strung together, uh, like chain, uh, beads on a string, because, you know, when I'm talking, sometimes when I'm talking to people, I'll say, and I'm just going to throw out some buzzwords here because I don't know which one you use, uh, data science, AI, ML, uh, whatever. Now, deep learning, that's a thing. Like, it's a thing. NLP, it's a thing. You can either be looking at NLP or not looking at NLP, but the other terms can be so, like, broad um, that I wouldn't uh, worry too much about it. And then I think the second question was, like, do you need to learn data analysis before you learn data science? Is that, yeah. is that it? Yeah. So, I, yeah, that's a hard question, but what I was kind of <laughs> thinking with it is like it depends on what i guess like how do you define analysis you know like i think that learning to think logically and critically and then learning whatever tools you need along the way i think kind of like grows into being called analysis and if you happen to use tools for 
solving problems like predicting things, and then it turns into using an algorithm to predict something, then I think now your analysis just became how to use for machine learning, data science, ML, whatever, AI. Uh, and so like, if you know how to think logically, then you'll, you'll get to analytics or whatever else data science words. If you don't know how to think logically or critically or analytically, then the rest of it's garbage uh, because it's all built on being able to think in, think in those terms. The end. Eric, wanna, thank you very much. Yeah, go for it. I want to quickly add one uh, thing there that um, it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter if you know, you're a data science, data, uh, if you want to learn data analysis first and become a data scientist, just play to your strengths. If it's just about the tools, it's about the result more often than not in the industry, it's about the end goal. So uh, Eric uh, is an analyst. He knows a lot of things that I don't. Like I don't know W, I don't know. He is a far better SQL coder than I am, but I have been coding in Python for the last six, seven years. So that's my choice of um, tool or that's that's the strength I like to play with. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all that. Like, do you need to learn data analysis before learning data science? Well, data analysis is kind of a core part of data science, right? Like it is an essential piece to the puzzle. So I think you're, you know, as you're learning data science, you will learn data analysis. I think, I think. I guess definitely. I think yeah, you probably end up learning data analysis before actual data science stuff. Like, I think that progression makes sense. Like before you get to like, like okay, so for example, right in my career now, I'm mostly doing deep learning type of stuff, right? But I started out in grad school studying like you know math and stats, right? And my first job in the field was as an actuary. Actuarial sciences, it's a lot of data analysis and statistical modeling, right? Um, it wasn't doing machine learning so much per se, but you know we're building, you know, statistical models in in some way, shape, form. Uh, and then it became a biostatistician, which was mostly all data analysis and zero machine learning, right? Uh, and then moved into other roles in proper data science, and that was more machine learning type of stuff. So, uh, man, I don't know where I was going with that, but. Yeah, I think inevitably you end up learning data analysis skills prior to learning data science. If by data science you mean machine learning, deep learning, NLP, and things like that. Makigo, you got anything to uh, 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 put in here? Yeah, so there are these three stages in a typical model development pipeline called feature engineering, model analysis, and then model evaluation. So, um, yeah. Because if you put together or train a model and it doesn't perform well, like for, for most people, what they would say, and this, this, this was something that people were talking about too, when AutoML started coming out, was like AutoML might like switch out the different like model architectures and you can, you can kind of like swap out or like a random force regression or like whatever, like a different um, algorithm. But the power is like in the feature engineering. And more importantly, if you don't have the right data or you don't have strong signal in the data, like guess what? You're gonna have to analyze it. You're gonna have to go back and get some more data, or you're gonna have to decide whether or not to even like hose the project, right? Because that whole statistic about how like 80 or 80% or whatever models don't make it to production, it also includes models where they like trained it, realized the results were garbage, and then they then had to throw it out. Um, so I'd say like analysis is like super important. I'd say storytelling is part of that as well. Um, but I think where it's sort of where you start kind of veering off a lot of times is like the strategy and the decision decision making um, part, as well as like interfacing with like key st key stakeholders, for example, like product or marketing or whatnot. To then determine, okay, so you know we've seen that we have this trend or we have these results from our analysis. Like now, what do we do, right? So as a data scientist, I. And then eventually, like as an ML engineer, I became very removed from my business partners. So I no longer had the insight and I no longer had the visibility into like what the business was doing. What I did was I had, I ended up working with my, like the data analyst team or the business partners to determine like what the right model was to then like put into production. But 
you know, like, so there, so there, there's trade-offs, but like, yeah, I would say like learning analysis is like super important, like as data scientists, because if you, if you don't understand, um, for example, like if you're looking at real estate data, if you don't understand that the, the value of the property is sometimes actually correlated anyway with like the zip code and all the other stuff, you might see like, oh, like we got some new like houses into our data set. Look, our average like portfolio value went up. Yeah, it went up because you started getting homes listed that were in a very expensive zip code, right? Your business is not doing better in that regard. You just happen to get, right, more zip codes. And that's something that if you don't have those like analytical tools at your disposal, you might just slap a machine learning model and go like, okay, we're doing great. <laughs> you know, so I'd say it's it's a super important like skill set for sure. Mikiko, thank you very much. And I hope that I answered your question there. Tosin, thanks so much. I'm gonna go ahead and start wrapping it up, guys. I've got to head to a head to, to a concert. Gonna go see Veer Das live, which will be fun. Uh got an exciting week up ahead. I'm getting back into recording. So I've got a huge recording sprint kicking off. So just want to read through some of the people I'll be interviewing with. And uh hopefully you guys will uh join me, tune in. Like I've got to set up like links, LinkedIn events, and I, I need a virtual assistant, is what I need. I'm finding that out because. I hate doing tedious things like setting up a LinkedIn event. That shit gets on my nerves. So if you are out there and you know a good virtual assistant, let me know, man, because uh, there's so much shit in life that I just don't like doing that I just I don't do. And um, things suffer because of that. Um, I'd rather just be doing the things I like. That's that's freedom right there. That's the real reason I want to get wealthy so I can only do the things I want to do. Uh, anyways, I digress. So people coming on the show in the next uh, in the next couple of weeks, uh, October 3rd, Al Bellamy, October 5th, Megan Liu, October 9th, Varun Nair. We're going to be talking about his book, Breaking Stereotypes. October 10th, the Seattle data guy himself, Benjamin Rogogan. Uh, October, uh, sorry, that was October 10th, Benjamin Rogogan, the Seattle data guy. October 12th, Luke Barose. October 16th, Akmel Syed, who's been uh, crushing it on LinkedIn with his content lately. If you guys are not following him, please do. He's got some good... Uh, Hot takes, spicy takes on machine learning. Uh, October 23rd, I've got uh, Jessica Iodelli coming on the show as well. Uh, I'm not proud of the uh, the imbalance in gender on my schedule coming up. I'm well aware of that. I'm doing my best to to you know make sure we got representation from from all cultures, from all you know genders and ethnicities and all that stuff. Um, it's just you know the people I reach out to don't don't respond back to me uh, sometimes. So if you know you know. I'd love to get more more people of color, color women of color onto the show. So if you know any who are open to being part of the podcast, please let me know because uh, my mom is a woman of color. So is my wife and so is my sister. And, uh, you know, so is my soon to be niece. So um, I'm all about supporting and uplifting them. So if you know anyone who uh, who might be interested in coming on the show or you've heard them on the podcast, uh, just set us up with with a quick intro, man. Um, you know, I'd like to correct this this imbalance I got going on. Uh, I'm well aware of it and uh, do my best to to fix it. Uh, that's it. I've got a massive toothache, y'all. i got to redo a root canal. That does not sound fun. My tooth has been hurting for four days straight. Went to a dentist today, and they're like, we got two options here. You could either pull out the entire tooth. And I was like, that's stupid because I need to chew. Uh, or do the root canal again. So I have to do the root canal again, unfortunately. But that is it, my friends. Thank you so much for hanging out. Appreciate y'all spending your time with me. Remember, my friends, you got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. <laughs>